Now, as we come to the sixth chapter of Galatians, we are coming now to next to the last major division of this epistle. In fact, we've been in it since we got in chapter 5. We had there saved by faith, and living by law perpetuates falling from grace. That was in the first 15 verses. And this is the practical sanctification by the Spirit. Then last time we saw saved by faith and walking in the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And that is chapter 5, verse 16 through 26. Now we come in chapter 6 in the first 10 verses, saved by faith and the fruit of the Spirit presents Christian character. In other words, we saw last time what it means to walk in the Spirit, that this is something we're to learn to do. We should begin. We'll fall on our face, but we're to keep at it. Now, how will this work out? How will the fruit of the Spirit work out in our lives? In other words, let's get right down now again where the rubber touches the road right down where it's put in shoe leather, and the shoe leather hits the pavement of our hometown. All right, will you listen? He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and who is the man here? Well, it's generic term again. It means any man that is a Christian. It means man or woman. It means, brethren, if a Christian man be overtaken in a fault, Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Now, see, meekness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, you see. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. All right, now will you notice this? He says here, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and the word for a fault here comes from a word, parapipto, which means to fall beside. And it is a word that is used actually at the time when the Lord Jesus went in the Garden of Gethsemane and said he went away and he fell on his face. Same word. And it means more or less like stumble. If a man be overtaken in a fall, if he stumble. And if he be overtaken in a fault, and the word here for fault is a word that means not a great sin, but it may be an awful blunder, but maybe not a great sin. Now, what are we to do with a person like that? The spiritual folk, and a lot of folk think they are, of course, and he says, ye which are spiritual... You that like to point the finger and condemn a person. Now, many of us that are fundamental in the faith, our interpretation of this would be, you which are spiritual get a baseball bat and try to beat his brains out because he shouldn't have done this and he's wrong. You see, there is always the danger of us especially when a brother's overtaken in a fault, we don't exactly want to restore him. We want to beat his brains out. We're certainly going to criticize him. And one of the wonderful things that is said in prophecy about the Lord Jesus is in Isaiah 63, 9. It says, "...in all their afflictions he was afflicted, 
Now, I believe the better manuscripts now say this. In all their affliction, he was not afflicted. I like that much better. The Lord Jesus goes along with me, and I'm sure he goes along with you. And when I fall down, and when I stumble and fall, he doesn't stumble and fall. He is not afflicted. When I fall, he doesn't fall down, but he's there by the side of me. And you know what he does? He picks me up, and he brushes me off and tells me to start out again. And it's wonderful to have one in all their affliction. He was not afflicted. And it says in the Scripture that the Lord waited for these people in the wilderness. And a lot of times they go off on a tangent. You know, he waits for them. How wonderful it is to have that. Now he says, ye that are spiritual, you are to restore such a one. And the verb there is a verb that means to reset a broken bone. Fellow falls down. He breaks his leg. What are you going to do? Walk off and leave him? No. He says, you that are spiritual, you set the broken bone. Get him back on his feet again. I think one of the great preachers of the South several years ago, he had been a drunkard and marvelously converted. And then he got under a great deal of pressure and temptation And he got drunk one night. (laughs) He was so ashamed, he called in his board of deacons the very next day, and he turned in his resignation. He said, I want to resign. They said, why? Well, he said, I was drunk. They said, you don't mean it. He said, yeah. And he said, I don't think a preacher ought to get drunk, and I want to resign. I'm ashamed of myself. And you know, those were wonderful deacons. There are a lot of wonderful deacons. And they just put their arm around him and said, let's all pray. And they prayed for him. And then they said, we wouldn't accept your resignation. And a man who was present that next Sunday, he said, I never heard a greater sermon in my life than that man preached. You know what these deacons had done? They were real surgeons. They were real doctors. They were setting a bone, a broken bone. And what a wonderful thing it was, you see. That was the time when you should have fired the man. And I can think right now that there's some of you who got a lot of risibles on the back of your neck and say, I still think that fellow should have been put out of the ministry. Well, God marvelously used him after that. Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one, and how are you to do it? In the spirit of meekness. You are to restore him with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. There's the word. You are to restore him in meekness. Why? Well, consider in thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It was the great German Gertie that said, I've never seen a sin committed, a crime committed, is the way he put it, but what I too might have committed it. Don't you think that you are immune to what you are pointing your finger and blaming the other brother for? You could have done the same thing that he did. So do it in the spirit of meekness. What a wonderful thing that is. Now we come down here to verse 2, and I want you to look at this because here is a verse that when I was a boy, 
I heard, and it made me wonder about the Bible. And let me give you a little background here. I think most little towns of a bygone day had a character in it known as the town atheist, a free thinker, generally a ne'er-do-well, and sometimes he wasn't. He could have been one of the leading citizens of the community. Well, in the little town in which I lived as a boy, it lacked many things. We didn't have any street lights. In fact, we didn't have electric lights at all. We used a lamp. And we didn't have any sidewalks. We didn't have any paved streets. And we didn't have running water, except you'd run out to the well and get it. And we didn't have what's known as inside plumbing. It was all outside. But, you know, in that little town I lived in in southern Oklahoma, we had a town atheist. He was a socialist, he said. And he would speak at a street corner on the square every Sunday morning. That is, when the weather permitted. And he generally would get a big crowd of about a dozen around listening to him. And to me, he was an amazing individual because I'd hear him on the way to Sunday school. I always stopped and listened to him. And the thing I marveled about the man was this. His mouth was cut on a bias, and he chewed tobacco. And you know that he defied the law of gravitation. The thing I watched about the man was this. You know, a mouth cut on the bias, you would expect the tobacco juice to run out the lower side of his mouth. But it didn't for him It ran out the top side. He not only defied God, he defied the law of gravitation. And he ridiculed the Bible. And he always was pointing out supposed contradictions in the Bible. And his favorite was here in Galatians. I can hear him to this day. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now he'd say, right down in that same chapter, just a few verses, it says... For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, he said, that's obviously a contradiction in the Bible. And all of us in the little town, we just stood with our mouth open listening to him. And we didn't know how to answer him. And by the way, how would you answer him? Well, it's a very simple answer if we'd just only known then. And burdens are those things that we all have in common. All of us have burdens. Not all of us are wealthy, and not all of us are healthy, and not all of us have natural talents. And actually, listening to this broadcast, there's some that don't have eyes. Some don't have arms. And there are many of us that do not have good looks. But all of us have burdens, and the burdens are not the same. There's a Spanish proverb that says, "...no home is there anywhere..." that does not sooner or later have its hush. The hush comes to all of our homes. There's a French proverb that says, everyone thinks his own burden is heavy. And George Herbert put it like this, no one knows the weight of another's burden. And there used to be a very wonderful lady head of child evangelism here in Southern California. Her name was Mrs. Ranney. And she used to say, and I've heard her say it several times, even children have burdens. Now, all of us have burdens, but we all don't have the same burden. And did you know that there are 11 different words in the Bible that are translated by one word, burden? 
And there are two kinds of burdens. There's the burden here that you can share. Then there is the burden that you must bear. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now, we didn't know in the little town that there were two different words used in the Greek. In verse 2, you could translate it like this. The burdens of each other keep bearing. And the word is baros, and it means something heavy. It's the burden and heat of the day. And the word is used in Acts 15, 28 at the Council of Jerusalem. They sent down to the Gentile church, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. It's that kind of a burden. There is a kind of burden you can share. There's a kind of burden you can't share. But here's a burden you can share. Someone has said that a load is half a load when two are carrying it. A woman in London got on a bus with a heavy basket. She sat down and put the basket in her lap. And there was a man standing there. He said to her, says, why don't you put the basket down on the floor? The bus will carry both you and the basket. And a lot of us got a burden that we could share with others. And we could share others' burden. Now, baros means fault. If a man be overtaken in a fault, man, that's his burden. May have some little sin. You could help him bear it. Infirmity, a fault, a weakness, an ignorance. Maybe he's doing something he doesn't really know about. A pressure, a tension, a grief. Oh, there's so many of these things. And this word baros it emphasizes the weight, something that is heavy. And this is something that you can share. Now he goes on and he says, For if a man think himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. You know, Paul gets in some of the most marvelous statements that are imaginable. And watch out for them. We've had several of them in Galatians. Here is one. It's a gem. And now here's a motto that many of us ought to have put on the wall for us to look at every now and then. If a man think himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. And you don't deceive anybody else. We need to recognize that. I heard a man say this concerning another. He said, I wish I could buy that man for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. A great many of us overestimate ourselves. And we need to recognize, especially when we come to God, we need somebody to help us bear the burdens. Now he says, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And I think he means here, don't run around getting everybody to carry your burdens. Don't do that. But why? Because he says, for every man shall bear his own burden. Now, what kind of a burden is this? There is a burden that you can bear, but there is another burden that actually you cannot bear. Something must be born, maybe heavy. And then there's a burden that you will have to bear. And this word is, I think, quite interesting. It can mean a child, a baby in the womb. Well, now, believe me, the mother carrying that will have to carry it, you see. And it means, actually, the load that's on a ship. That ship has to carry that cargo. And it is like that. There are certain things that you will have to bear yourself. You can't get somebody else 
to bear these things for you. You will just have to bear them yourself. And I think Dr. Phillips, it's not a good translation, but it's a marvelous interpretation. He puts it like this. He must shoulder his own pack. Are to every man his work? Or we have a very common colloquialism. Every tub must sit on its own bottom. That's a good one. Now, each life is separated, isolated, segregated, quarantined. And I think that, frankly, Dr. Funk in his Funk and Wagnall's dictionary, he says the saddest word is the word alone. There are things that you and I'll have to bear alone. One is suffering. We are born into the world alone, a world of woe. We suffer alone. We have to face certain problems alone, physical suffering and sickness. I remember my little daughter, and she's a little child, got sick. And we were coming back from Texas, took her to the hospital in Phoenix. And I looked down at her. She had 104 fever, and the doctor was examining her right there and then. I'd have given anything in the world if I could have taken that fever in my own body. But it can't. You've got to bear things yourself, friends. And there's mental anguish. And there's some loved one that's far from God, and you're suffering. You can't share that with someone else. And then the day will come when you'll go down through the valley of the shadow of death. And Thomas Hobbes put it like this, I'm taking a fearful leaf into the dark alone. And how tragic it is to have to do that, by the way. And then there is the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear there, every believer. And we'll have to appear there to have our works judged, you see. And then, of course, there's another burden that you can't share and you can't bear, and that's your burden of sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ bore that for you on the cross. And he says, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you and take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Are you carrying a burden of sin today? Bring it to the foot of the cross. Jesus Christ bore it for you. What a wonderful passage this is. I'm sorry that I didn't know this and when I was a boy to tell that old atheist in my hometown how wrong he was. There's no contradiction in the Bible, but he certainly was a contradiction. Now look here at verse 6, will you? And this is probably the bluntest verse that you'll find in the Bible. Now, Paul really put it on the line here. He says, "...let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things." Now, the word here for communicate is actually the word koinonia, which means sharing. It means taking part and sharing the things of Christ together. And it really does not mean to ask somebody to give, but to share. And what he's saying very bluntly is this, pay your preacher. Does he share spiritual things with you? Well, if someone ministers to you spiritual benefits, minister to him of material benefits. If God has blessed you materially and you are being blessed by someone spiritually, then you ought to minister to them. Now, this is put 
on a grace basis of sharing. But believe me, friends, when you go into the grocery store and you take down a loaf of bread, then you go over to the meat counter and you get a nice T-bone steak or a roast, and you start going by the cashier's place without paying for it, you will have trouble. And no one thinks anything about that in the world. But when someone ministers to you spiritual things, and then you go by the counter and don't pay and don't share, actually, why, the Word of God says you're to share with them. That's the reason I say from time to time, wherever you're getting your blessing, that is the place that you should support. If you've got a good Bible church, you support it. By the way, it could even be a radio program. If you're being ministered to, then you should minister, because that's the way God intends it to be, because we shouldn't attempt to be, as one party wrote me and sent in a gift, said, I'm tired of being a freeloader. We appreciate that. And this idea today of saying on the radio program Everything that we offer is free. And then they turn around and ask you to send in something. It really doesn't mean free. And very candidly, I think that we ought to be very frank today. I have to pay for radio time. The stations insist on that. We have to pay a printing bill here. And the post office always makes us pay for the stamps that we use And we have a light bill and a water bill and gas bill. And there are several bills we have to pay. And there's no use me beating around the bush. We just have to pay them if we're going to continue to send out the Word of God. And I think Paul's just being very blunt here. Let him that's taught in the Word communicate. The Word coin on the eye. Share with the one that teaches you in all things. I guess you think I bore down on that a little too much, but I guess this probably is a little more personal than some others might be. Let me keep moving now. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now here is one of these remarkable passages of Scripture that I think needs to be considered today. He puts down here a great principle, and we find that he's saying here, Behold, a reaper went forth to reap. The Lord Jesus told about a sower that went forth to sow. But also, the Bible tells about, Behold, a reaper went forth to reap. There was a visitor one time in a penitentiary, passed by a cell where a man was patching his prison garb, and he was sewing with a needle. And this visitor looked in and wanted to start up a conversation. He said to the prisoner, says, what are you doing, sewing? And the prisoner looked up and said, no, reaping. <laughs> That's the point. The principle is stated here, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, this is an immutable, irrevocable, invariable, unalterable, never revoked, never can be changed one iota. And it's applicable, I think, to every sphere and field of life. 
You take it into the field of agriculture and horticulture. Man sows corn, he gets corn. And you never did pick squash on a walnut tree. And a watermelon vine goes out 20 feet in a direction, and never has it been known for a watermelon vine to make the mistake of putting a pumpkin out there. Always puts a watermelon. And they are finding wheat and the tombs down in Egypt, and they were there 5,000 years ago. And you know what happens? You sow it, it comes up wheat. It just didn't forget in 5,000 years. The principle is what you sow, you're going to reap. And there's so many men in the Bible that are illustrations of that. Jacob deceived his father. He pretended to be the elder when he was actually the younger. And you remember he put on that goat skin on his hand. His father felt him. And I think also smelt him, by the way. And that doesn't speak well for Esau. He's an outdoor man. He smelt like a goat, apparently. And Jacob deceived his father. Then he ran away from home, went down with his uncle Laban, And he thought he got by with deceiving his father. But you see, God says what you sow, you reap. You won't reap something similar. You reap the identical thing. What happened? Down there, he fell in love with Rachel, served seven years for her. They had the wedding, and when he lifted the veil, what did he have? He didn't have Rachel, the younger daughter. He had Leah, the older daughter, and she wasn't quite as good-looking as Rachel, by the way. And I have a notion that this boy Jacob on his honeymoon, learned a real lesson. And the lesson was that the way he had deceived his father, he pretended to be the elder when he was the younger. Now he's given the older when he thought he was getting the younger. Believe me, chickens do come home to roost. And you remember Ahab and Jezebel, they thought they'd get by with it. They were king and queen. They took Naboth's vineyard. And they thought, my, we'll get by with it. But Elijah said, you'll not get by with it. Right where you slew Naboth, the blood of Ahab will be spilled and the dogs will lick it up. Well, you couldn't believe that had come true. Old Ahab says, I'll stay away from this place then. But you see, he was wounded in battle, fatally. Told his charioteer to take him out of the battle. Where'd he bring him? Well, just by chance, brought him to the field of Naboth right at the spot where Naboth had been slain. And that's where this man died. And they washed the chariot, and the dogs licked up the blood. Paul was at the stoning of Stephen, led in it. And they stoned him over in Lystra and Derby when he got over in the Galatian country. Well, somebody says, but he became a Christian. His sins are forgiven. Oh, yes, they're forgiven. But this is a law of God. Always works. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. And that's been true of many men. Lord Byron said, My life is in the yellow leaf. The fruits and flowers of love are gone. But the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Chickens do come home to roost. Dr. Robert Lee, the great preacher years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, had a famous sermon, Payday, someday. And he took up the old Jezebel to illustrate it. May I say to you, it's been always true. But somebody said again, but you're a Christian. No, I remember hearing Mel Trotter, the great evangelist. He was a converted drunkard, and we had him for an evangelistic meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. And one night we went to a place called Candyland. Everybody ordered a great big old sloppy banana split or some sort of a milkshake or malt or like that. He ordered a little bitty glass of carbonated water. 
And everybody began to rib him about it, kid him. And so they asked him the reason. I never shall forget what he said. He says, when the Lord gave me a new heart at my conversion, he did not give me a new stomach. I'm paying for those years of drinking. May I say to you, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. You don't get by with it. You'll never get by with it. And I wish that could be told. A lot of young people today that go on drugs, a lot of young people today in taking easy sex. And, of course, some of them are already beginning to reap that. Venereal disease is in epidemic stage in California, we are told. Why? Because God says you don't get by with it. I don't care what you do. I don't care how many pills you take and all that sort of... God says you're going to reap it, my friend. Why? Because God is not mocked. When you sow corn, he's going to see to it corn comes up. When you sow sin, it'll come up. Somebody says, I got converted. All right, you're still going to have a payday someday. You still are going to reap what you sow. Well, we better move away from that. That's very strong, as you can see. And that is something that today that he's making applicable here to the Christian. He says, He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall do what? Well, he shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, reaping life everlasting means the fruits of the Spirit and means the glorious prospect of the future. I think a great many Christians really ought to be fearful of the return of Christ for his own because we go before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things done in the flesh. My friend, you may be saved, but it could be very embarrassing for you in that day when you give an account of your life to him. And John mentions the fact that it's possible to be ashamed at his appearing. Because if you're going to live in the flesh and produce the things of the flesh, now I'm not saying you lose your salvation. I don't think you do. But you're sure going to lose a reward. And you're going to see that very candidly. It's going to be a pretty dark day for you to stand before him. But now there's the other side of the coin here, and it's the bright side. He put up the red light. Now he puts up the green light. Notice verse 9. Now here is something for your comfort and your encouragement. And notice what he says. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, Christian friend, may I say this to you? And I know I'm speaking today out yonder to folk that say, as a father said to me some time ago, I'm concerned about my boys. A doctor said that to me. He says, the tide is against me. Schools are against me. Other parents seem to be against me, and friends are. But he says, I want to raise my boys right. And you sow the right seed, friend. You'll reap it. Just be patient, he says. Let us not be weary in well-doing. When the time comes, do season, you'll reap. You can't go out and cut grain in Kansas in January. you got to wait till the time of reaping comes. So just keep sowing, brother. You're having your problems and difficulties today. Well, keep sowing the Word of God. And the Lord says the Word of God will not return to him void. It's like rain that comes down from heaven. And you sow it, it'll bring the harvest in at the right time. 
You remember, Abraham believed God, and he walked with God in the land of Canaan, and the Canaanite was then in the land. He was an idolater and wicked man. And then there came this little boy, Isaac, in his home, and he grew up there, became a grown man. One day, Abraham took him under the top of Mount Moriah. And what happened? Well, he offered him there, but God wouldn't let him go through with it. And Abraham sowed to the Spirit, and he reaped life everlasting. Jochebed, she was the mother of Moses down yonder in Egypt. She taught that little boy of hers, because she became his nursemaid. And Egypt was against her, and paganism was against her, and pleasures of Egypt were against her, and the philosophy of Egypt and the religion of Egypt, everything was against her. But she told Moses about Abraham, and she told Moses about God's call and purpose, and she saw him grow up to look like an Egyptian next to Pharaoh. But one day there came that time when he forsook the pleasures of Egypt, <laughs> and the sin of Egypt. And he went out and took his place with God's people. May I say to you, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. There's that man David. His sin is glaring. We think of him as a cruel man. I know that when I talked about David some time ago, I had letters from all over the country. And they just said, my, how terrible that fellow is. And you defended him. Well, I did. You know, it's interesting. You can put a drop of ink on a white linen tablecloth, and you can see it almost a mile away. But a drop of ink can fall on a black suit, and it's not noticed. And the reason that David is noticed, all the other kings were living it up. David committed one sin that just stands out. And he had a heart for God. And even in his confession, he reveals his hunger and thirst for God. As the heart panteth after the water brook, he says, so my soul panteth after thee, O God. And you know, he became the standard and pattern for the kings in his line. It's a human standard, but he became the standard. Why? Because if you're going to sow, you're going to reap, friends. He paid the penalty. He had sorrow in his home. But I want to tell you, God made him the example for every king after that. This is a marvelous passage of Scripture. So wherever you are and whoever you are today, you may say, I'm in a hard place. Well, you sow the Word of God, and God will see to it you're going to reap one of these days. And you can't reap until it's harvest, friends. You have to wait till then. But we need to be faithful in sowing the seed, because as a law of God, God's not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you'll reap. Now, if you'll sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap. Life everlasting. You sow to the flesh, it's going to be corruption, friends, one of these days. Now, he moves on. He says, "...as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith." We ought to be do-gooders. Now, I recognize today that liberalism, the entire religion of liberalism, is the do-good religion. But very candidly, I don't think they do much good. Now, when the cameras were down in Watts, the liberal was very much in evidence there. That was during the time of the riots. We had already started years ago a school down there. It's running down there today. The liberal has left because the TV cameras are not down there anymore. 
He's not doing anything. Our school is still in existence. Now, I believe in doing good, but you've got to have the right foundation under the do-gooder process, friends. And the thing is to put all of the epistle of Galatians, the gospel of the grace of God, and walking in the Spirit of God. And when that takes place and the fruit of the Spirit is produced, then, my friend, you're going to do good. Do good to all men, especially do good to believers today. Oh, how important this is. This brings us now, friends, to the last major division of the epistle to the Galatians. We come now to the autograph conclusion, beginning at chapter 6, verse 11, through the rest of it. We have now, in verse 11, Paul's own handwriting. And then we'll see Paul's own testimony. And then the cross of Christ versus circumcision, and then Christ's handwriting on Paul's body. In other words, there are three handwritings that are mentioned here. Now, the first one that he mentions is here in verse 11. He says, "...ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand." Now, the large letter here doesn't mean it's a long letter. It means it's written with big letters. And Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians himself. Now, in Romans, Paul had a secretary. He dictated it. And at the end, the secretary, Paul said to him, if you want to put in your two bits worth, put it in. And so he said, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. Paul says, tell him hello. But not in Galatians. He's not telling anybody, hello here, he's been angry, you know because they've been mixing the gospel with law. And when you do that, you absolutely destroy the gospel of the grace of God. Now, he'd written this epistle. He didn't wait for a secretary to arrive. And he says, you see how large letters, not a letter, not a long letter, but letters. And why did he use large letters? Because, friends, Paul was partially blind. I studied Shakespeare under a very wonderful Shakespeare scholar, But he was partially blind. And he used to put the book right up to his nose and run it back and forth. I didn't see how the man could read it. But imagine studying Romeo and Juliet, a man running a book right in front of his eyes. But that's the way he did it. He sure could teach Romeo and Juliet, by the way. Well, Paul has written, apparently because he had eye trouble, I believe that was his problem, that he's now written large letters. And when this teacher would hand back a paper to us, it was always in big letters. Whatever grade you got, you sure got it in big letters. And he never was able to comment very much because he'd use up the whole outside of the paper, making just one or two words he wrote so large. Well, Paul apparently is writing like that. Now, Paul says, you see what large letters I've written unto you. Now he says in verse 12, "...as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ." Now, Paul makes quite an issue of this, and this is what is known as counting noses, to be able to report that you had so many. 
And Paul says the reason these Judaizers want to get you into legalism and circumcised is then they can report you actually as a convert. And it'll keep them out of trouble with certain folk. Actually, you never get in trouble preaching legalism. It appeals to the natural man because law is given to curbing. And a great many of us certainly feel like the other man should be curbed. That is the old nature of the other man. I was talking to a man the other day in a public place, and there came by a boy in a hot rod, and he was driving about 75 miles an hour through a very dangerous intersection. And this man was for having that boy arrested and made to obey the law and put in jail and all that sort of thing. And he is one that today rejects the grace of God. He's an unsaved man. But he's certainly for legalism, you see. Everyone is for the other man obeying the law. And frankly, like one that we can obey. It's like when I was a boy in school, I did high jumping and they'd start off in those days, with you about three and a half feet. When it got up to four feet, I had problem and difficulty. So when I practiced, I always kept it down right at four feet. You get up to four feet, three or four for a boy, that's pretty far. So I never did much practice and up there on my own. And that's the way most people are about legalism. They want to be able to clear the hurdle, and they don't want it to be too high for them. So they like that. Legalism is popular. The thing that makes you unpopular will be preaching the grace of God. It's the thing that the human heart finds repulsive, you see. It's the offense of the cross. Now Paul says in verse 13, "...for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh." Now, the very interesting thing is that those who today claim they live by law are not actually living by law. I believe that the thing that has made more hypocrites than anything else are these people who tell you that they live by the Sermon on the Mount. And may I say, I know that to be true of the experiences that I've had in my ministry. And I can just cite one. I spoke many years ago at a luncheon at the Chamber of Commerce in Nashville, Tennessee, when I was pastor there. And one of my elders, a banker, was president of the Chamber of Commerce that year. And so he invited me, a young pastor, I wasn't even married then, it was my first church, to come up and speak. Well, I got there a little early, and there was another man there up at the speaker's table, and he was an official in it. And I never heard a man curse as that man did. I tell you, he could swear more than any man. And I've heard some that were experts at it, by the way. But this man seemed to be the champion. And so finally, in our conversation, and I never attempted to say anything to him, he said to me, by the way, he says, what's your racket? <laughs> that was the way... He asked it, and, well, I said, I'm a preacher. And he looked at me in amazement. He said, are you the speaker today? And I said, yes. 
and he began then to tread water fast. He said to me, he says, well, now I want you to know that we're glad to have you, and I want you to know I'm a Christian. Well, that was certainly new, because I'd never gathered it by the way he talked. And then he enlarged on it, told me that he was a member. In fact, he was a member of a very fashionable church in Nashville, and he was one of the officers of the church. He was a prominent man. And believe me, he was telling me about the wonderful things that he did and all that sort of thing. And then he concluded this tirade of words by saying, you know, he says, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, is my religion. Well, I said, fine. I said, that's great. And I shook hands with him. And I said, how are you coming with it? He looked at me rather puzzled. He said, what do you mean by how am I coming with it? Well, I said, you say the Sermon on the Mount is your religion. I'd just like to know if you're living by it. Well, he says, I try to live by it. Well, I said, I know, but that's not what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. It puts down a pretty severe standard, and it hasn't anything in there about trying. You either do it or you don't do it. And now you say it's your religion, I assume you do it. Oh, well, he said, I certainly try. And then I began to push him a little. I said, well, do you keep it? And he said, well, I guess I do. Well, I said, let's see if you do. I said, the Lord Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. How do you make out on that one? Well, he said, now, that one, I might have a little trouble there, but he said, I think I'd get by there. Well, I said, let's try the other one that he lifted to the nth degree. He said, if you so much as look upon a woman to lust after, you're guilty of adultery. I said, how about that one? Oh, he said, that one would get me. Well, I said, I thought it would. But is the sermon then on the mount your religion? I'd just like to know. Oh, I'd try to. I said, look, you're not keeping it. And if I were you, I'd change my religion and get one that I could, you know, do something with it. You see what he was, actually, he was a hypocrite. He was around telling everybody the Sermon on the Mount is his religion. He was breaking it at every turn. I'm of the opinion that it also says something about God's name being holy and blessed are the pure in heart. Believe me, that man wouldn't get anywhere living by the Sermon on the Mount. You see, he needed the grace of God. And there are multitudes of people today in our churches that are just like that. And Paul is mentioning that now, and he says this tremendous statement, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And so between Paul and the world, there was a cross, and that is the position that every believer should be in today, a cross between him and the world. And that'll have more to do with shaping your conduct than anything else. And also, you will not boast of the fact that you're keeping the Sermon on the Mount or that you belong to a certain church. Are you an officer? Are you a preacher? Are you a Sunday school teacher? You will not be able to boast of anything. You'll just glory in the cross of Christ. And that is the position that Christians ought to have, and not in a local church or in an organization 
or in an individual, but in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the one, of course, who died on that cross. Now he says here in verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, he brings something to us here that is the second handwriting that we have here. He says, "...in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision." And circumcision was sort of a handwriting on the body. It was just a badge that you belonged under the Abrahamic covenant. And it never availed anything. It was just like wearing a button. You belong to a lodge. You wear a pin, a fraternity pin. It becomes almost meaningless. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything. And uncircumcision is no value either. These things carry no value whatever but a new creation. Now, the important thing is this. Paul is saying here that legalism and the badge of legalism is nothing. And actually, even if you don't have it, and I think today that there's sometimes there are people that like to boast of the fact of what great sinners they were. And they spend a lot of time telling you about what great sinners they were. Well, whether you've been circumcised or whether you haven't been, actually, it's nothing. Those things are nothing. The important thing is, are you a new creation? That is, as the Spirit of God come into your life and made you a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that only comes about through faith in Christ. Now, you see, Paul would never have had any difficulty with the legalism of his day if he was just a competitor in the field. Let me illustrate this. Suppose today that on the market there's all these soaps, and I won't pick out any one, but here comes along a new soap, and maybe we ought to call it clean, because that is something others seem to have forgotten. They talk about they make you smell good and they make you feel good, but I haven't heard any of them talk about getting you clean. And that seems to be the purpose of soap. So let's you and I get out a new brand of soap. We start advertising it, and we say this is the only soap that there is that'll make you clean. So buy clean and get clean. And may I say to you that we'd get in trouble immediately if we said it was the only soap. Because there's so many others, and they would really begin to howl. But then that's what Paul was saying, you see. Paul was saying, if he just said, well, Judaism is good, but Christianity is better, he wouldn't have been in trouble, because that's the way all these advertise today. All the different soaps, they say, we got the best soap. Well, we do a better job than the other folks do, and that's competition. Now, you don't dare come out and say, the only soap on the market's our soap. There's just no other soul. And this is the only one who'll do the job. Then you may get in a little trouble. But the fact of the matter is, you see, Paul didn't say that, that his soap was just a little bit better than Judaism. He said Judaism is nothing. 
and circumcision is nothing. Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, it's nothing. And friends, that's putting it on the line. He says only the writing of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you a new nature, that's the writing. Now, we come to the third and last handwriting here. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God from henceforth. Now, listen to him here, verse 17. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, will you notice that word mark? And if you want to read the handwriting that was on the Apostle Paul, and that's what he's talking about, I bear in my body the marks, and the word is stigmata, means scar marks. And Jesus had written on the body of Paul. If you want to see the handwriting of Jesus, look upon Paul's body even. And over in Second Corinthians, the 11th chapter, In verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I'm more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. He says, I've received forty stripes, save one five times. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep and journeys often, and so on, and so on. My friend, that man had marks in his body. The Lord Jesus had written in large letters on the body of Paul. Now, the stigmata of the sufferings of Jesus in his life. You know, in the body of Jesus, there were five wounds. And Paul was beaten all over. (laughs) That was his stigmata. And that word, by the way, was used in Paul's day It was used when a slave ran away. And when he was found and brought back, he was branded in the forehead. I think it was Cave Forum that was put there, CF. And then it was used by soldiers. They didn't go and have any tattooing done, but many of them who were in famous companies, why, they would have the name of the commander actually tattooed on their forehead and then the devotees of a pagan goddess. And there was much of that in Paul's day, there in Asia Minor, especially in the Roman Empire. And these devotees, they were fanatics. They'd have that on them. Paul says, I've got on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, and let no man trouble me. Paul says, if you want to know the things I've written to you out of deep emotion and the things that I've written with great conviction, if you want to know whether I believe them and whether they're real in my life, read my body. Look at my body. Just like a cattle and sheep are branded, the owner puts his brand on him, and you can always tell the owner by the brand. I was raised in West Texas in the day before they had too many fences. And that's the way you could tell it, was the brand. Now, look, circumcision costs you nothing. It's just an outward sign. Paul says it's nothing. And he had been circumcised. But he says, I bear the brand marks of the Lord Jesus. 
and the Lord Jesus is riding upon my body and upon my life. And I think that today he stoops down again and writes, not on sand in the temple, but he writes upon the lives of those that are his own. He puts a branding iron on us, my friend, on his sheep and on their hearts for eternity. Oh, how important this is today. And there's so little of that that's seen in the church. Those who are willing to bear reproach for Jesus' sake. And that's the thing that backs up a living faith that he's talking about. Our time is up, and we'll begin Psalms next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.